Well, today is a bittersweet day because you've joined us on a day when we are closing out a Grace Fellowship Church era because we're going to wrap up the book of Romans today. Going to wrap it up what we started in April on Sunday, April 7th, 2013. We began this journey and here we are in chapter 16. Oh my goodness, I've been your lead pastor for 20 years and I I do have to say, I think it's been my very favorite journey together with you ever. But here's what I'm going to say to you. Got some good news. You have my permission to go here and read it on your own whenever you want. I won't be preaching it anymore, but you can read it on your own. It's such, so I hope it just whet your appetite that there's some favorite places in Romans now that you'll go back to. So let's dig into the final chapter. Romans 16, turn with me in your Bibles and please follow along and sit up and pay attention. Don't take a mini vacation. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but stay with me. It's all good. Chapter 16. Beginning of verse 1, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobos, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet Shortly, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, Paul would usually dictate his letters to someone else who wrote it down. I, and he's saying, I'm the one writing this for Paul. I say hello. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city in Rome, greets you. And Quartos, a brother. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, Be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Oh, this is such a rich chapter to end on. Because I believe it brings into view in one of the most striking ways the juxtaposition of little people. People just like us. Bumped up against. Bumped up against. God's sovereign, glorious, unending, almighty power and wisdom and grace. And so this chapter, I believe, was designed to settle us and to assure us that even though when you look around our church and whatever church you've been a part of, and when you read about articles of other places in the world where the church exists, In case it ever struck you this way, and it often does, to settle us and assure us that even though the church of Jesus Christ is made up of some of the most ordinary people you could ever imagine. I might add sinful, ordinary people that still need to change and grow that you could ever imagine. People who who are never going to be household names, who will never grace the covers of any magazines... It's through these same kind of people that God is going to accomplish his purposes, defeat our enemy, Satan, and put on display his own glory for all to see. That's all you got going on in this chapter. Right there. So, what I want to do, because it's a big chapter, I'm not going to exhaust what could be done here. Here's all I want to do. I want to show you what I think God wants every Christian sitting here. If you're a Christian, you say, I know Jesus, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, I've been been redeemed, I've been born again, I've been converted. He wants every Christian sitting here to remember three things. Something he wants to remind you of in this last chapter. And these are things, folks, that you're not going to get watching CNN news. These are things you will not get Surfing the blogosphere of all the latest cultural commentators that are out there writing and screaming and talking. You'll never get this anywhere but from your Bible. And some of you that are listening to way too much talk radio need to shift to Biblio, Bible. To get this, what I'm about to show you, you won't get anywhere else. Three reminders. Because we forget. We get rattled. We get disoriented. We get fearful. Three reminders. Here's the first one. Number one. Number one, what he wants you to be reminded of. Don't ever, ever, ever underestimate what our God can do through little people just like you. It's in fact, it's not the exception. It's the norm. It's how he rolls. It's how God operates. It's the pattern that you see in scripture. Big God Working through little people to 
to accomplish his amazing purposes so that when the dust settles, the unbelieving world says, what? And God gets the glory. And we get the joy of just having gotten in on it and to be a part of it. But God could have done it without us. Big God, little people, amazing purposes. And it's how God's been doing it as long as there have been people. But to appreciate what's going on in this first half of chapter 16, I think you got to jump back and look at the end of 15 again. Look at the end of chapter 15, verse 33. You see it? Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What's that sound like? Sounds like you just stuck the landing. Done. It's exactly how he ends so many letters. We've got 12 or 13 letters of the New Testament that were written by Paul. We know how he ends stuff. That's how he ends things. But it looks like after he had ended, he began to think about Phoebe, who he's already asked to carry this letter to the church at Rome on a business trip. He says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and commend her to them. Tell, her, tell them something about her and tell them to receive her. But as soon as he does that and he commends Phoebe, who's on her way to take the letter, it just gets the juices rolling because he begins to think of other names of people in that church. And notice, it's not people, names and people that are flashing across his mind in a general way. He calls them by what? Say it. Say it again. He calls them by name. He knows their names in a day without an iPhone with a way to keep up with that. Isn't that amazing? He cares about people by name. He felt compelled to call them out by name. But if you, like me, found yourself thinking as as I read through that, who? Why are these people taking up space in the Bible? I've never heard. This is not David, Moses, Deborah, Ruth, Mary, Martha. I don't know these people. Why? Would there be space taken up for this in a in half a chapter of the Bible with everything that Paul could have been doing inspired by the Holy Spirit? So if you're wondering why a list of relatively unheard of people would take up this kind of space, and get this, I want you to feel it even more. They are taking up space for half a chapter in not just one of Paul's letters. This is one of Paul's letters. Everyone would agree, whoever studies the New Testament, this is Paul's greatest letter if you were an author this would be your magnum opus this is his magnum opus of god and god's glory in the face of our sin and the power of the gospel and the sovereignty of god over all this is his magnum opus where his best thoughts come together in lifting up the gospel in the face of our sin why would you end it on what feels like boom boom a low note If you're struggling at all, let me get you to go with me here. Think of it in terms of this. Think of it in terms of a blockbuster movie. All right? Think about a blockbuster movie, whether it's Avatar, Titanic, or the latest Star Wars movie that I did not see. Sorry. But people went nuts. With a blockbuster movie, right, there are some big, 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 big names that were paid big, big, big bucks to get you into that theater. And God, or Paul, I'm sorry, and Paul has already done that. Paul has already gone for the big, big names and put it on display in a glorious way for 15 chapters. The big names have been on center stage with the spotlight on them for 15 chapters. You see God the Father in Romans chapter 1 and his glory, the glory of God. 
The glory of God. The glory of God. And we're taught in Romans chapter 1 that our problem is not an ignorance problem. We just don't know him. We just don't know there's a God. No, you know and you suppress it. And actually it's worse than that. It's not an ignorance problem. It's a preference problem. We prefer creation over creator. And we exchange the glory of God for things made in this world and try to satisfy ourselves with them. But it doesn't work. Chapter 1, we get God the Father in all his glory. In chapters 5 and 6, boom! Jesus Christ is center stage as Paul unveils and lifts, lifts the drape off what is the most glorious gem of a doctrine in all the Bible and just turns it in the light for two chapters, letting the light reflect off every cut and carrot and clarity and all those things about a gem, just boom, boom, boom describing for us how our salvation or justification being made right with God is by grace alone, boom. Through faith alone, boom. In Christ alone, boom, boom, boom. Plus what? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, and so Jesus, it's been Jesus in Romans 5 and 6. Jesus, you can't work for it. It's a free gift justified by Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. The sun has been on display. And then after a messy but honest chapter 7, where he says, hey, by the way, don't be thrown for a loop. Even though you've got this salvation, you've been set free, you don't have to sin anymore. You still have this body of sin, and it's going to be a fight to not do the same things you used to do. And to remember, you don't have to do it. And then in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit shows up and then blows it up, being mentioned 20 times in 27 verses. Chapter 8 mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times in 27 verses and tells us, oh, it's not just you trying to live the Christian life and say no to sin. It's if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. You're empowered now. You've got resources beyond your own strength, your own wisdom, your own tenacity. It tells us by the Spirit that you say no to sin. It's how you fight sin and finish well. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the big names that have been on display for 15 chapters. The sovereignty of God the Father was Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so you say, Brad, what in the world is Romans 16, 1 to 16? Stay with my movie thing. You know what it is? It's those credits that start to roll across the screen at the end of the movie. You say, what? I know. Some of you have never stayed for that. You don't know what I'm talking about. You're up and out. Whatever. It's the movie credits that start to scroll across the screen at the end of a blockbuster movie with names that are obscure and relatively unheard of. Not household names. They don't make the cover of a magazine. People who were little people who were doing things you don't care about like camera grips, sound engineers and cinematographers, set designers and costumers and makeup and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. But without each of those little people doing their part, that blockbuster movie with big names would never have made it to the theater. Now, I know my analogy breaks down if you're thinking, oh, but... I know God can do what God does without us. But here's the thing. If you read your Bible, how much of it? Say it again. 
From Genesis to Revelation, you see, God can do what God does without us. He just chooses not to. For all of Scripture, the history and the record of what we have is God chooses to work through little people to do what he is doing. And so Romans 16, 1 to 16, that's what's going on. These are the credits. These are real people doing stuff, even though they may not be famous. Here's what I want to encourage you to do for a little extra. I wish we had time, but we don't. Romans 16, 1 to 16 is an example of little people. That God uses little people. If you want the theology behind it as to why, read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. All right? So that's a little extra. You can go there. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 31. It's one of my favorite passages. I wish we had time to read it, but we don't. But that's where he talks about the foolishness of the gospel and God has chosen. He hasn't chosen the wise. He hasn't chosen the noble. He hasn't chosen the mighty. He's chosen the things that are not to confound the world. Go read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31 for the theology behind the example you have. And so here's what I want you to take away from this list of names. 34 names in 16 verses. Notice this. From these names, what I want you to take away from the names is that you don't have to be super gifted for God to use you. Say, thank you, Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's good for you. That bodes well for you. Bodes well for us, all of us. You don't have to be super gifted for God to use you. Here's what I think is interesting. With a list of 16 verses with 34 names, we know Paul took an entire chapter in Romans 12 to unpack spiritual gifts. God's given you amazing spiritual gifts, all kinds of spiritual gifts. Everybody has one. Not a word of it. He doesn't say anything about their spiritual gifts. That's not what got them on this list. You say, really? Yeah. That's not what got them on this list, spectacular or otherwise spiritual gifts. But there is something that all 34 people share in common that got them on this list. You may be sitting here and you may be someone that says, I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. I still really haven't sorted that out. Good news for you. What I'm about to say with these three things, you can start today. Ignorant of your spiritual gifts. Here's the three things they all shared in common. They were all willing to work hard. Long after they felt like quitting. Long after the thrill of ministry was over. They just wouldn't quit. Secondly, they were willing to risk. They didn't live safe and soft with lots of margin in their life. They were all in, willing to risk. And thirdly... They were scattered all over the city of Rome. They weren't piled up in one place. And they were even willing to relocate if necessary to go wherever the gospel was needed. I mean, like change cities. Those three things. So let me unpack it a little more for you. Number one, characterize it. There were people willing to work hard. See, they were not super gifted. He makes no mention of gifts. Look at me. But they were this. They were all in. They were all in. You can be that. You can do that. Oh, it's scary. It'll cost you. But they were all in. It has nothing to do with giftedness. All in. They weren't playing church. It's like, I believe this. I'm all in. They weren't just hovering on the margins looking for what they could get. 
and not willing to give much of anything. They were all in, willing to work hard. Let me ask you, what about you? Never mind your gifts. Like, well, I'm not sure what my gifts are. Push all that aside. Would it be a fair statement? Would it characterize you for someone to say, oh, Jeff's all in. Sally's all in. Michelle's all in. Look at how she lives her life. Ted's all in. He's all in. Steady, faithful, unheralded ministry from people whose names are not known is God's favorite way to accomplish his purposes. You do realize, folks, super gifted people flare out all the time. While marginally gifted, average Christians settle in after the thrill is gone, after someone hurt your feelings at VBS over the gift bags, after, after, after all kinds of things. Think of all the things that happen in time with ministry, right? After, they just wouldn't quit. And they settle in with a steady, just won't quit, unheralded lifetime of ministry that makes a huge impact on people. And they will hear, well done, good and faithful. People may not know your name, but our Father does. Your Savior does. The Spirit does. You say, Brad, how do you know they were all in? How do you know they worked like this? From one Greek word that's used three times in this passage. One Greek word used three times tells me that's the kind of people they were. It's the word kapia that means to labor and toil and work past the point of wanting to quit. There was another Greek word for work. It's ergon. He didn't use it. Look at verse six. Mary's one of those people. Look at verse six. And Mary, greet her, who kapia, labored, kept going after she wanted to quit. The thrill was over. She'd gotten her feelings hurt. Kept serving. Kept doing ministry. Look at verse 12. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa who have labored in the Lord. Kapia. Past the point. Here's what I love about these girls. They were either sisters likely or twins. Their mother had named them delicate and dainty. That's what Tryphena and Tryphosa. They didn't let their names slow them down. Delicate and dainty kept going when others quit. They worked past the point of wanting to quit after the thrill was over. And then look at the end of verse 12. Persis, greet Persis who labored much in the Lord. It's the same word. To work past the point of exhaustion and wanting to quit. And you just won't. And here's what I also want you to notice. Three of those four names I just listed in verse 6 and verse 12 are women. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis. The first three are women. Get this. The women were not on the sidelines. They were right there with the men, whether it's couples or singles, engaged in real ministry that was tapping people out, that was exhausting. In fact, it's worth noting of the 34 names in chapter 16, no less than eight of them are women. Women. How I thank God for the Marys and Tryphenas and Tryphosas of Grace Fellowship Church who have labored and kept going in the children's area at the reception desk or in a certain class, who have kept hosting a small group long after the carpet had been urinated for the third time, 
long after all those things that happened to your house when you open it up, just wouldn't quit, just stayed with VBS, even though they were in the parking lot doing the games that year and thought they would die, but they did lose six pounds and she was excited about that. Just wouldn't quit. Oh my goodness, folks, you know certain names, Brad Bigney, Peter LaRuffa, maybe Steve Freeburn in the early days, Steve Barnett, what... Folks, there are names that if I begin to name them to you, you'd say who, and it would mean nothing to you if we put them on the big screen. But without all these people, our church wouldn't be what it is, and we wouldn't be where we are today. It's all these little people doing. We got people that teach a children's class week after week after week, and some of them have done it for years. We've got people that come home from their jobs, jobs. It's not because they're unemployed that they lead a small group. They do it with their job, or they host a small group and clean the bathroom and set the chairs. And here's the real kicker. Get this. Maybe you haven't made this connection. If you lead a small group or you host one, you have to be there every week. Oh, you can't say my allergies are really killing me. Yeah. Just sneeze your way through group with a tissue right on your right nostril because you got to be there. It's in your house. It's awkward to be in the bedroom. So I'm not coming out. I know you're there. I'm not coming out tonight. Real tired. Real doobie doobie down. Going to do what everybody else does some weeks. Just not come. That's why there's 24 on the roll, but 11 show up. Why is that? The host and the leader are always part of that 11. I'm okay. Thank you. But it's labor, right? It's not imprisonment. I know they're Christians facing far worse things in prison or torture. But folks, it is costly, isn't it? And they've labored. We couldn't be the church. who There are Christians who come home from their jobs and either in the living room or the kitchen table or in a room at Fort Thomas or a room here, then sit across from a person who's really hurting and in trouble and stuck. And they use their Bible to try to help a real person with a real problem in biblical counseling. And they put their shoulder under someone else's weight and burden and trouble along with what they already got going on in their life. We got men and women and couples doing that week after week after week after week. People, sh- people standing in the parking lot in the cold and rain and heat with a vest so that it doesn't just gridlock here at Florence. People who come early, surely you know this, they come early to make coffee or it wouldn't be made. A worship team that comes early, in fact, they come on Saturday. Did you know that? They give half a Saturday to rehearse So if you're on the worship team, you come on Saturday and then you come on Sunday. They're pulling up when I'm pulling up at seven. Some of you are like, I can't even go to 8.15. Oh, talk to the hand. They're here at seven with me and they stay for 8.15, 9.45, 11.15, aren't done till 12.30 or so and go home. Laboring, laboring. People that run the AV and the sound so that you'll actually hear my sermon, hear the band, see the words to the songs. All these movie credit people both inside and outside of our church we've got people who god bless them we got people who are going to public school campuses and middle school campuses to connect with lost kids to go to a football game basketball game band competition on top of their other stuff giving nights out to connect and hosting opening their home for a young life meeting with cars up and down the street and kids playing capture the flag in their yard and others yards and getting complaints from neighbors So that in that talk that night, some of those kids could hear from the gospel. And folks, I know this is not Bangladesh, but I hope you realize some kids are hearing the gospel for the very first time ever. That's where where we are in America now. They didn't know the gospel story and that Jesus died and loves them and could change their life. We got people, I know I don't have to come back on Sunday night and most of you don't either. We got people that come back on Sunday night. Yes, yes. 
to lead our student ministry and to be a co-grow leader. And, to, and then they burn vacation days. Imagine this, to go to camp, to go to camp, to engage and to reach that next generation. They're doing it all on top of the regular jobs and using vacation movie credit people that you don't know, but God does. And our church is who she is because of, that's what Paul's doing here. He knows, I want to call these people out by name. The same thing is true right here at Grace Fellowship. It's not Brad Bigney and the names that you know that have made us who we are. It's all these movie credit people. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, it just made me tired you describing that. Why would I do this? You've convinced me even more. Don't do it. He mentioned urine. He mentioned having to be there every week. Don't do it. That's what I thought. Let me tell you why. When what Jesus has done for you and the gospel grips you, you know that it's worthy of your best. It's worthy of giving your all. It's worthy of keep going long after you retired. But here's the other deal. It's not just, oh, I need to do this. Someone has to do this. That won't last long. Guilt gets you hardly nothing. Here's what some of you don't know because you've never stepped into it. There also is a joy when you're giving your life away and when you're seeing God use you. There is a joy. And let me add this. There is a spiritual growth process that kicks in that you can't get from books. I just said it. I know you know I love books and I wave them around all the time and I read 30, 40, 50 a year. Listen to me. Brad Bigney wouldn't be who he is just by reading 40, 50 books a year. I'm going to say it, Mr. Book Guy. There is a point that you hit the wall with books and it's the end of what a book can do. And when you get in the trenches to serve, you'll find grit, but you'll find grace and growth in a way that books can't do. I commend it to you. Serving, even in obscure, out-of-the-way places and ways that are unspectacular, catapults you on spiritual growth in your transformation to become more like Christ. I'm telling you, if you're just listening to sermons and reading books, step into serving, step into serving, step into serving. Watch what God will do. They worked past the point of wanting to quit. Secondly, they were willing to risk. That's what you see from the couple. Aquila and Priscilla, willing to risk. He doesn't tell us what, just as they were willing. He doesn't tell us what happened. But here's the thing I also like. Whatever it was that happened, it involved both the husband and wife. I think that's cool. It doesn't say, and Aquila risked his neck while Priscilla stayed behind in safety and prayed him through it for her man. Gave him prayer cover. There's a place for that. There may be times you do that. Whatever this was, they both did it. To get both were willing to risk their lives for the gospel. I hope we've said it enough that you actually know this and it's not news to you. We have couples like that in this church. We're, we're about to send out a PG6 team is what we're calling it. We've got couples, the team leader who I'm not going to name for safety purposes. There's a husband and wife in our church. Husband and wife who are going to lead this team to a country where it's illegal to talk about the gospel and talk about Jesus. They're going to go there with a team of other couples and singles on purpose. Is it risky? Yes. Could they be imprisoned or lose their lives? Yes. But they're going to go because we've targeted an unengaged people. And God has called us to go and make disciples of all 
nations. So they'll take two more trips this summer to explore, to spy out the land, to investigate what are the best ways to get in here with a visa and what kind of jobs should we try to get to stay here and how would we build the church and be involved in sharing the gospel and reaching out. We have couples like Aquila and Priscilla willing to risk their lives. And the third thing that you see They were working hard, willing to risk their lives, and they were scattered across the city and willing to relocate. If you read through these verses, you see how he comments on greet so-and-so and and those that meet with them. Greet the brethren here. Greet. It's a reference to they're not all piled up in one big building. They're scattered across Rome. Rome was a big city. It makes more sense to they live in different places. They're scattered different places. Stay with me. That's why even in America today, we made the choice to not try to pile up everybody right here if some people are driving 30, 45 minutes. That's why our church family is bigger than Florence and there's some meeting in Fort Thomas on purpose. It's cost us more money. It's been inconvenient. We've lost some of our best people who are over there serving so that people in Newport, Bellevue, Covington, Cold Spring, Cincinnati, Batavia wouldn't have to drive a half hour, 45 minutes. When their people invite them, they wouldn't say, I'm not driving to Florence. We're going there. We're scattering. The church at Rome was a multi-site church. More than one place. But here's the really neat thing. It wasn't just that they were scattered over one city. Some of them were willing to uproot and relocate to a different city altogether for the sake of the gospel. That's what you also see from Aquila and Priscilla. That is a name and a couple that you see in other places in the New Testament. They show up in verse 3 here, but if you read your New Testament, they show up four or five more places. And it appears that they spend the bulk of their married life moving from city to city. I don't know if they had a trade or what they were doing. But if you read your New Testament, you'll see that they showed up in Pontus, in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus, back to Rome, and then back to Ephesus again. I moved seven times before I was 16 years old. So I know some of the challenges of uprooting and starting in a new city and all. These were people. I know of people that relocate for their job. Not a sin. That's what we got going on with the Delps. Toyota's moving them there. But we're trusting that God will use them there also for church, for kingdom, for gospel. But wouldn't it be cool if there were some couples that on purpose don't relocate because of their job, but relocate, find a job when you get there but saying the gospel is more needed here. There's a new church started, starting here and I wanna use my gifts here and be a part of that. On purpose, we relocate for the sake of the gospel or the church. This is what characterized these people. Not super gifted, willing to keep working long after the thrill was gone and it was hard. Willing to risk and willing to relocate if necessary. Let me show you a second reminder Number two, don't ever lose sight of who's ultimately in control. And where all of this is headed. Oh my goodness. Verse 20 is where I'm getting this. Verse 20 needs to flood over us and wash over us like a waterfall. Verse 20 needs to take your breath away in a day where every time the news is saying something, it's worse. And every time Washington pronounces something, it's more scary and more away from God's word and towards what looks like to us chaos and foolishness. I know, but that's why verse 20 is in this chapter. Take a deep breath. 
I don't need anybody else to email me and say that Target just instituted transgender bathrooms. I know. And I'm still going to shop there. I know Obama just said all public schools need to do the same and institute this or you're going to risk federal funding. Yes, these are unsettling times. Yes, this is scary. Yes, this is. I know there are radical terrorist groups and extreme groups who are doing atrocious things like beheading Christians and even children. What do we do with that? I tell you, don't stick your head in the sand and be ignorant of it, but glance at that and then read your Bible. We got too many. How many articles do you need to read about it? Once you know it, okay, that's bad. What do I find in my Bible that will encourage me and stabilize me in the face of this? I don't need a hundred articles about it, but you do need verse 20. Verse 20, that's why it's there. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. God of peace in the midst of chaos and confusion will, not might, we hope so. Maybe he can get the upper hand. I don't know where this is headed. He's a big God, do you think? Will crush, not wound not stab, not disable mildly, will say it. Say it again. Under your feet shortly. And here's the problem. I know you're thinking it, so I'm gonna address it. Doesn't seem shortly to me, Brad. He wrote this a long time ago and it still hasn't happened. (laughs) Boom, drop the mic. (laughs) We'll go to 1 Peter and check it out. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. So there you go. He's not on the same timetable, folks. It's his promise. It's going to happen. It's going to, so you say, what do I do in the meantime? I'm stuck with the word shortly. What am I to do right now while it isn't happening? That's what the second half of verse 20 is for. Look at it. Look at it. The second half of verse 20 is because it ha- hasn't happened yet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And grace is not something in a bottle. It's not something in a spray can. Notice how he put it to you. It's found in a person. You got Jesus. Then you got grace, which means you got power, which means you got peace, which means you got the ability to keep going. You've got Jesus living. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with. Don't forget he's with you. He's with you. He's with you at that job. He's with you in that community. He's with you as all these scary announcements are made. We are not orphaned. We are not abandoned. We are not alone. Our God reigns and is with you. With you. And here's what I also think is noteworthy. We live in a day, not this church. If you've been coming here a while, you see we don't do that. We live in a day that there's pockets of Christianity and books that are being written, always has been, that make so much of Satan and demons and spiritual warfare and everything's rebuke this and, and in the name of Jesus rebuke this and, and name the demon and cast it out and that, 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 that. And it's a whole spiritual warfare deal that makes so much of, I'm supposed to learn if there's a certain prince of power of darkness that's over Erlanger and get the name and pray against it. I'm gonna walk through my neighborhood and pray against it. Folks, let me help you. This is gonna offend some of you, but it's gonna help a lot of you. The Bible doesn't teach you to do that. 
And so you don't have to say, until I learn what the prince of power of darkness is over Covington, I guess things aren't going to go well. And until I learn if my great-great-grandfather played with a Ouija board and break that generational, oh, I don't know. Stop it. After 15 chapters of what God has done for us and how to live the Christian life, there has not been one mention of Satan. Not one. Until now. And the only thing he chooses to say about our enemy Satan is, could be summed up by what Martin Luther penned in his great hymn. All he's got to say after 15 chapters about Satan and 98 mentions of Jesus Count them, 98 times in Romans, Jesus, our Savior, the Son, the Savior, the risen Savior. All he has to say is, lo, for lo, his doom is sure. He can rage against us, but he cannot condemn us. And he does not win. He does not win. He's been defanged. Yes, he's scary. Yes, he's on the prowl. Yes, he intimidates. Yes, he roars. Yes, he'd love for you to think that you have to obey him, but you don't. You have a new master and he cannot condemn you. He can accuse you. He can rail against you. He can rage. He can threaten, but he cannot ultimately take away the greatest thing that's happened in your life. You have been set free from sin and your future is determined and set by God who's on his throne. And he can't touch that. He can't take that away. He can't shake that. Oh my goodness, he wants to remind you of who's ultimately in control and where all of this is Headed. You're not going to get that from CNN news or blogs today. You're going to have to get that from your Bible. And so I take verse 20 as a general glorious principle and promise. I don't think it was referring to anything particular that was going on in Rome. I don't think it's addressing any current event today. It is a general glorious promise that the church will triumph over evil and Satan. And you say, and see, see, again, don't make the mistake. I guess I'm supposed to be crushing Satan in the name of Jesus. I, I just crushed him. There you go. Crush him. Out of my life with my son. Crush. Crush. He doesn't talk that way. You say, how do we crush Satan? You just keep doing everything God taught us in the first 15 chapters. As you take a meal to someone who's hurting, as you sit down with your Bible across someone who needs help, and to use it to counsel someone as you host a small group, as you lead a small group, as you teach a little children's class, as you do young life, as you open up your home, as you connect with a coworker whose son just killed himself, as you take a meal to someone who work, at work who has cancer, as you do what looks like little stuff that he's called us to do, God does the heavy lifting. No, it doesn't tell you to crush Satan. God will crush Satan under your feet as we just do. What the world would say looks pathetic and little. Isn't that good news? Say, thank you, Lord. There's not some secret that you're missing that you got to get a hold of. Third reminder. Number three. I think God wants every believer from this passage to be reminded that you should never move on from the gospel. Don't move on from the gospel that not only has the power to save you, but has the power to keep you and strengthen you from whatever you're facing right now. You see, where do you get that, Brad? Verses 25 to 27. 
This reminder Paul actually puts in the form of a doxology. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. That word, look at me, that word establish in the Greek means to help you stand, to make you firm, and to set you, to help you to be set steadfastly. Set, set. In a day when you feel rocked and shaken and moved and disturbed, and he was able to establish you, to establish you, to establish you. The gospel doesn't just save you. It can establish you and give you strength for what lies ahead. And here's what I love as I conclude that, that moves us towards our Savior. And I always try to do that if I can. That same word in the Greek that is translated in verse 25 to establish you is the same word that is used in Luke 9.51. If that's not in your bulletin, write it down. Luke 9.51, where it says about Jesus. says this about Jesus. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Same word, set his face. Jesus who was fully God and fully human. Folks, he was scared. He was undone. He was overwhelmed. That's why he cried out, oh, let this cup pass. He, by God's grace in his life, the same grace you have, set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, knowing what lay ahead, knowing the shame, knowing the brutality, knowing the wrath of God poured out on him. He set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing why he was here, what his real mission was about. So stay with me. That same Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem for you to solve your biggest problem now lives in you for whatever you're facing today. He, can, he knows what it's like to try to set your face. He knows what it's like to stand. He knows what it's like to be firm. He's in you and he will help you set your face for whatever it is when you walk out of here today. Whatever that job situation, whatever that home situation, whatever that health situation, whatever that financial situation, he's in you. He did it himself. He can do it for you. So I want us to taste that gospel. That gospel and remember our Savior who set his face to go to Jerusalem to solve our biggest problem. If he's willing to solve our biggest problem and it's done, he can help you for whatever that is you're facing right now. I want us to celebrate communion and taste it and touch it and be reminded. Oh God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this final chapter even. It's filled with such encouragements and reminders that you use little people like us, that you are in control and will crush Satan. It's not our job, it's yours. We just keep faithfully doing what you've called us to do. And it looks little, it looks pathetic. It looks like it would never make a difference, but it will. And thank you that the Jesus who died for us lives in us and can help us set our face to finish well to be established. We give you thanks in his name, amen.